Father, thank you that um, you reached down for us when we did not deserve it, and you sent your son to die for us, even though uh, we were not worth it. Uh, Thank you for uh, paying that ransom from sin and death and hell so that we can uh, be with you in eternity. I pray that we would uh, uh, make every effort to remember that um, throughout this week and today as we fellowship with one another and go about our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome to Maranatha. Would you take some time this morning to greet those around you? Well, good morning and welcome to uh, Maranatha. Uh, For those visiting, my name is Pastor Aaron. I'm the children's pastor here, and we are excited uh, that you are here worshiping uh, today with us. And we also um, would like to acknowledge those of you that are online as well uh, who are not with us. Uh, Thank you for making an effort to um, get to church today for those of us who are in person. It is amazing, no matter how full church gets, There's only a couple brave people who will sit in these front rows. So Rick and Laura and uh, Lance and Angela, we have your prizes awaiting you in the lobby. Um, um, Just a couple of announcements that we want to make you aware of. First off, Joel Michael is not here today. I know it. Uh, Mom uh, has a little uh, chest cold going on, so hopefully he'll be here next week. If you want to come visit our house, it's only a $5 entry fee at the door, um, along with a a plate of cookies or something else uh, yummy. Uh, But thank you for the kind uh, kind words, cards, gifts. Um, We feel very blessed to be able to um, bring life into the world uh, and raise a son in a church like this um, that is so committed to family. So thank you for that. Uh, Just a couple other announcements we want to let you know about. Uh, Our Seder service will be uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, and the sign-ups for those um, are out at the welcome desk. It is filling up, so I recommend that you uh, just jot your name down. Uh, Wednesday night is uh, specifically for a youth group and their families, so if you have uh, some kids in in youth group uh, specifically and want to go to that as a family, just uh, write your name down, let us know, and then Tuesday is open for uh, everybody, but uh, we do recommend... uh, Get your name on the paper so we know how many to set up for, uh, and uh, that'll help us as planning goes. Um, Easter and Good Friday, uh, our Easter services, we will not be having uh, our adult discipleship groups or or kids uh, ministries going on anything. Um, We'll have service at 9 and also at 1045, so if you could help us out and um, just go to 1, please. Maybe, uh, maybe come to the, to the later service and help spread things out. That would help us out a lot. Also, uh, for summer, since we're going to continue our adult discipleship groups through the summer, we also need some help uh, with our kids' discipleship groups uh, for the summer. Pastor Tony and I have been throwing around some ideas uh, to, as to what we're going to do specifically for that. 
Um, we just basically need volunteers to be there, maybe to do some teaching, help with crafts, help with some games, um, and help with some good discipleship uh, with our kids. So you can um, co- come talk to me about that. You can talk to Pastor Tony about that. Email the office um, to get more information about that. Uh, every week we try to celebrate um, some things that God has done. And today we want to celebrate a specific ministry um, that God has used here at Maranatha. Um, This month is the 20th anniversary of our Helping Hands ministry. Um, So I'm going to invite Bob Linder to come up and share a little bit. Would you just do me a favor? If you have either helped with or gotten help from Helping Hands, would you raise your hand? please. Yeah, look at that, Bob. That's pretty cool, huh? Awesome. So I'm going to let uh, Bob share, and then Pastor Cody's going to come. Wow. It's hard to believe it's been 20 years. I guess, no wonder I'm feeling a little bit like I need some younger blood to hand the, the baton off to, <laughs> to keep this great ministry going. Am I on? Okay. This ministry started with two good friends in a Bible study, and we were studying the book of Galatians. It came from the last chapter, chapter 6, that says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, if we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially those who belong to the family of believers. As we finished the study, Josh Haltman and I approached Pastor Dan, wondering if the church could use some, a ministry that could take care of some of the physical and hands-on needs of the congregation. And boy, did we find out that it could. From there, the ministry took on a new life of its own. As we got started, I remember gathering and praying with our pastor, Pastor Dan and Pastor Paul, in the foyer. And when we were done praying, I said, what should we call this ministry? And those of you that know Pastor Paul just said, duh, helping hands. (laughs) So it became the helping hands ministry. Our first job was a, a friend in the congregation on a move from Birchwood to Rice Lake. And uh, that became a major part of the ministry. But as time went on, there a lot of other gifts came from those that have uh, volunteered to be part of the ministry. And we did light carpentry, minor household repairs, leaf raking, snow blowing, wood splitting, minor car repairs, and other unusual things that I wouldn't have thought we'd be doing. We dug a hole and buried a dog and had a small memorial. I remember that person, it was very specific, and uh, the need had come in, and uh, that's what they asked us to do, and we had a a nice little memorial service after. We helped a lady in town that doesn't uh, attend church, and uh, we helped her set up and tear down a, a garage sale that they do every year. This past Monday, I got a call, and uh, there was a lady with terminal a terminal illness, and uh, I usually like to go out and, uh, if I don't know the people, I didn't know who it was, and, uh, and visit with them, just kind of get to know them, and so we sat down and talked for a while, and uh, kind of I like to see, kind of scope out the size of the move, 
so I know how many, what we need for equipment. And we had a chance to talk there, and uh, as we were talking, I said, I could tell, I hadn't seen her in church before, and it's like, so where do you attend church? And she says, I'm a Pentecostal. And I, I was raised Pentecostal, and she said, we speak in tongues because the enemy doesn't know what we're talking about. So I thought that was kind of cool. But um, anyway, as, uh, so this was on Monday, and uh, I usually like to have at least a week in advance to know so I can get my team together. And uh, anyway, so I, I made a couple calls that night, and, and she had to be out on Friday. That was the, the thing. So I got a little nervous. and uh, So I made a, call, a few calls, and uh, by Tuesday afternoon, I had two gals and four guys, and we had her completely moved out. Only God could do that. <laughs> so when planning um, each of our jobs, we try to be sensitive to what the needs are and to how to get the job done in the most efficient way. We try, try to remember to pray at every job and keep the focus on who we are working for, giving the glory to God. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has already prepared in advance for us to do. That takes the pressure off me. These things are already prepared. This has been a ministry where men have found a place to get plugged into the church and serve. But we also have a lot of women that get involved, adding their much-needed gifts to this ministry as well. As you can see in the pictures, <laughs> this ministry is one that takes on a lot of hands and feet to get the job done. And God has blessed us with many workers. As, so as we celebrate 20 years, I would like to recognize anyone who has been involved in the Helping Hands ministry. So if you have been involved in any way, would you please stand Thank you. Thank you so much for your service. I believe that every church that consists of serving all generations should have a helping hands ministry. I'm so blessed to be a part of a church that is intentional about being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Thank you. We want to take a moment and pray for this ministry, and I'm going to do something that Bob probably doesn't want me to do, but I want to thank him. <laughs> Not often do we get someone to come up and just share about a ministry that's behind the scenes. And I encourage you, if you're young and strong... And you might be like, that's something I would like to do. Please get a hold of Bob. He would love to have you be a part of this. And th this, this sounds weird. Sorry to do this to you. But as a pastor, I'm always thinking, always planning ahead, even preparing for people's funerals and stuff like that. Not that I'm planning for your funeral. Okay? <laughs> Thank you. But if that day comes... 
he's the nothing man. He's the guy that does things that he doesn't want the glory for. He wants the Lord to have the glory, right? And that's the heart of this ministry, the nothing man. I'm just here to do God's work. I'm just his servant. So thank you for all that you do, and thank you for all that stood. We appreciate you greatly. <clears throat> he takes off, doesn't let me pray for him, but okay, well, well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this ministry, and what a blessing to have this ministry to care for our own in times of need, in times of stress, but also care for those in the community. We thank you for the men and women who've helped in the past and continue to help today. It's quite a job to do and map it out and plan it out, and sometimes they get asked to do more than they anticipated. But above all, Lord, we do this for your glory, not to us, not to us, but to your name, to your glory. We do this, Lord. So we thank you, and we also pray that maybe there's some young people in this room that think, hey, that's something I could do. I love helping out. So Lord, we ask for another 20 years of blessing on this ministry. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen? <coughs> <clears throat> well, guten tag, buen dia, I'm saying foreign languages, right? What am I saying? Good morning, good morning. The reason I, I started like that is because what I'm about to share today as we go through this might seem very normal. Even though you've heard guten tag before, anybody speak fluent German in here? Okay, there's one, maybe two, all right? Buenos dias, buen dia, and he's going to speak fluent Spanish. I know two for sure, okay? The, we're going to go through a passage. In fact, we're going to go through one and a half chapters today that are very familiar to us, but also what we're going to do is we're going to do something very foreign, as in we're going to look deep in this passage and realize this is something that's very hard. I mentioned last week at my desk, I have a handful of things that are there. These are two of them. If I ever forget this, I'm in trouble, right? That's right in the center of my desk. I've got a variety of things that remind me of the cross and this one here. Why is it so easy for me to forget what it took for me to live? We're going to go through these stories. I'm not going to cover all the details. A couple years ago, we even went through every Sunday before, we went through each of the days. If you want to go back and see some of those things, great. I want you to pause this morning. Slow down. And this will kind of be like a foreign language. We, we kind of know what we're, saying, we're hearing, but I want you to slow down And look at the cross. Because some of us, we've been Christians for so long. We know these stories. I, yeah, I, I, I know this. I've taught this in Sunday school. 
This is tough. There's death. And I'm just going to read these sections of passages here, comment a little bit. It might be very short this morning. It might be very long. I'm I'm not worried about that. I'm worried that you might miss Jesus. So no matter where you are in your journey with God, getting to know him a little bit more, it's a bumpy road, you're the age of my grandparents and you got it all figured out, pause, right? And let's look at Christ. So let me open with a word of prayer. Lord, we do want to meet Jesus. We, we confess that at times we get so busy with the busyness of life that we forget to pause and gaze upon the old rugged cross, the emblem of shame. As Protestants were I think, and I believe, we're on the right track. We got this big cross behind us here, up in the front. It's a beautiful one. But we forget that there was blood. The Son of God died a gruesome death. So guide us by your Spirit. Move in any way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you take your Bibles and go to Mark chapter 14, we are in our series with Christ in the School of Discipleship. In our last part here, we are looking at kind of meeting the Master, meeting Jesus. And what we're going to do the next two Sundays here is we're going to work through the middle of Mark to the end of Mark and then the whole chapter of 15. In doing this, we're going to walk through these passages, looking at the events of Jesus as he goes to his death. This Sunday, we're going to focus on the darkest day. It's not going to be really happy this morning. We're going to look at the darkest day of history, focusing more on the tragic, the ugly part of the cross event. Then next Sunday, Palm Sunday, we're going to do the same. We're going to go through the same passages again. But we'll be looking at what leads us to the brightest day. Amen? The beauty and the triumph and the treasure of what he did. That's next Sunday. This Sunday we won't get that. And ultimately this leads us to praise and delight. So two quick, brief little statements before we get into this. What we're about to read is very tragic. It's sad. It's ugly. Why would the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, have to go through this? Should have put mirrors in front of all of you. It's because of me, right? So I want you to feel the weight of this as we read through this on your soul. But secondly, this is important. We'll we'll deal more with this next week. What lies beneath these tragic events is the sovereign hand of God. Amen? That's very important to know. 
So we're going to look through five parts of the story at hand. And today we're going to show old classic kind of paintings, descriptions, artist renderings of these events. Whereas the next Sunday, we won't look at the old paintings. We're going to look at modern day photos of these locations. And there's not many notes up on the screen at all. Just, you're going to see five words. Each event, I've kind of summarized to a word. All right, Mark chapter 14, 27 through 31. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. So I encourage you, I don't have the words up on the screen. Grab a Bible. We got Bibles in front of you there. We got, if you're in the front, we got Bibles in the, underneath you in the seat there. So we just finished the Last Supper. They had their meal. It was a time of celebration, continuing to remember what Christ has done. I'm sorry, what God has done. I'm jumping ahead of the story here. What God has done through the Exodus story. And again, I encourage you, if you haven't signed up for our Seder service, please do it. We were rehearsing it this Saturday or yesterday, and I was like, this is so dripping good. So please join our service as we do that. We continue now with Jesus and his disciples. After they've sung a hymn of praise, which we'll talk about this coming Tuesday and Wednesday, such beauty now leading to the darkest night for Jesus and the twelve. All the disciples will soon abandon him just as he said. Just as sheep run when the shepherd is struck down, this is what's going to happen. In a real sense, the father strikes down the son on the cross so that he may lay down his life for the sheep. And as we see these predictions that Jesus has been laying out for them, they happen within a few hours. Peter, protest. Not me, he's the big outspoken one, right? And Jesus rebukes him. Oh yes, you. But they're they're great disciples, not I. Let's jump to verse 66. It's the end of chapter 14. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus, she said. 
but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. And probably there you could tell by just the accent he had. Where you lived, you had different ways of speaking, just like we do up in the north here compared to down south. He began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. As Jesus is about to face death, Peter is fearing his own life, his own reputation, and denies Jesus. And this word deny has this force of over and over. The the verbal form here is again and again. He's just so quick to deny. Then he realizes what he has done. And he weeps. So denial. Jesus, during this darkest time, has to deal with denial. Now let's go to, go back a little bit to verse 32. Suffering. In this section, I'm calling this suffering. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here, keep and watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it is possible, if it is possible, the hour might pass from me. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you have kept watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hours come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. They enter this garden. <clears throat> we'll talk more about this next week, but it's an area where the olive trees are. And Gethsemane means 
oil press. It's a place where they would grab these olives and make olive oil. Jesus separates himself from most of the disciples going off to pray, but he's about to enter this very difficult time. And like all people, he wants the support of his good friends. So he takes the ones closest to him, Peter, James, and John. His closest friends are the ones who are supposed to understand more than any other, these are the ones I've been pouring into. They'll be with me. They'll keep watch. But prayer is not on their radar at all. They fail again as they fall asleep and are unprepared for what is to come. Here he suffers another type of abandonment and denial. He gives a rebuke, pointing out that humanity is weak. Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, in his divine nature knows what is about to come at the cross. And that's the only way to save the people. But according to his human nature also, he asks, is there any way? Is there another way? If salvation could be done, be purchased without such a high cost. In distress, he falls to the ground. He knows the suffering is about to come, and he experiences it even there. The physical agony, the troubled grief, distress, knowing the awful hour was about to come, great suffering. He begged for the cup to pass. He was so distressed emotionally that he sweated blood. Jesus was in turmoil. He was going to death as the one who would bear the sins. As the Lamb of God who would take on divine wrath to atone for the sins of his people. And we can barely understand the horror of that thought. On his own, because his friends are sleeping, he knows that he will become sin so that his people will become and the only way that they could become the righteousness of God. No wonder he asked for another way. No wonder he said, please, there's got to be some other way. Suffering. All right, the next event. 43. <clears throat> We're going to do 43 through 52. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him a crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, Jesus said? 
that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts. You did not arrest me, but the Sahedrin, or sorry, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they had seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garments behind. Compound betrayal found in the treachery of deceit expressed with a kiss and a special name given to Jesus. A kiss is a normal greeting in some countries. In fact, when I go to Bolivia, there's greetings. You can shake hands, but if you, it's kind of like between a handshake and a hug, I kind of consider it. Like if you know someone or whatever, you can kind of greet them on a side, you kiss on the cheek. In Bolivia, you just do cheek to cheek. You don't actually kiss. Sadly, one day I did the wrong side and I caught someone's lip. It was horrible. I was like, which side? I don't know. <clears throat> but it's, a, it's just a greeting. You just give a kiss. In the first century, this was what was done. A kiss is a sign of affection, just like a hug. If I would give you a hug, you would know like, oh, Pastor Cody's not creepy. He, he cares for me. Judas compounded this treason even further with referring to him as rabbi, a a title of honor. He just doesn't go up and kiss him, but he gives two blows, the kiss and the name. And sadly, Jesus is handed over to the captures by one who should have loved him. The betrayal is by one who had been with him, learning from him. It's bad enough to be betrayed by an acquaintance, but to be betrayed by one of your own, to abandon by one of your own is horrific. I see this at times when I deal with marriages gone astray. When one spouse will come to me and say there's been betrayal. My spouse is off with another person. That to me, in those situations, I go, that's got to be the worst pain in the world. Denial is bad, but betrayal cuts even more deep. The actions of Judas show that he's neither really loved Jesus and he did not honor Jesus as he deserved. To make things worse, we learn that even those who were supposed to be more the faithful friends, it says they're the ones who also abandon. They all leave, just like he said. Jesus now faces this execution and this trial. All that's going to come alone. A solitude that he will experience to the fullest, most painful extent when his father even steps to the side. Still in the sovereign hand of God. Now he's alone. Along with Judas was a crowd of people with swords and clubs. From the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They're the ones that commissioned this to go arrest Jesus. In all their study of Scripture and all that they should have known from the Old Testament, they should have been supportive of the Messiah. But they also betray Scriptures and God. 
Look at that last two verses. In this story, Mark is penning this out. And I remember reading this, some dude, some reason he was naked, he just only had some clothes on, you know, just a cloth on, and then, boom, he runs, you know, like, what, what does that have to do with the story? <laughs> and I did a lot of research on it, and many commentators go, you know what? And, and the, every of the 66 books that we have in our Bibles, God has every aspect very important. And you got the human authors in their own style and the way they wrote it. You look at the four Gospels, it's amazing how different they are. Same story, right? Different audience and all this. And they're, 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 they're writing. And many go, guess who this? Mark put that in there. This doesn't add. Well, how does this add to the story? Oh, many say, you know what? That was probably Mark as a little kid. Because <laughs> I'm sure... When Mark is writing this, he's known as, ah, you're the naked boy, remember you, ha, 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 right? So that's included in there. It's very possible. All right, 53 through 65, continuing with this betrayal. They took Jesus to the high priest, and the high, or the high priest and the chief priest, and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. So now we've got this, he's arrested, now we're getting the trial. Peter followed him at a distance right near the courtyard of the high priest, where he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then someone stood up and gave a false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. And yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you going to answer? What is this testimony about these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, he said. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming down in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? They all commended him, for his, him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Now we are brought to this group of religious people who commissioned him to be arrested. The Sanhedrin, the, they're the highest of the Jewish ruling body of court dealing with religious matters. And Jesus is amazed during his arrest saying that he was treated better than or worse than a robber could have been taken even at night as we saw before they had many opportunities during the day 
But the soldiers acted as if he was a criminal, even though they plainly had seen him in the daylight, that he was not one. And that this arrest shows that their awareness that he was guilty of no sin, so they had to do it at night. Totally wrong. Betrayed at night, they had to hide their unjust actions under a cover of darkness. Though we will not cover this today, our Savior's trial is one of the greatest mishandlings of justice ever committed. The council seeks false testimony, and they only want evidence against Jesus. They could care less about the truth, and they want to do their best to fabricate a case against him as Jesus refuses to answer the false charges. The Sanhedrin take him based upon his claim to be destroyed, the te- destroy the temple and rebuild it. Back then, vandalizing something that was very sacred, you could be put into prison. That's a capital crime. And Rome would have wanted to avoid the public turmoil if this occurred. So even this testimony twists the words of Jesus because he said the temple of his body would be destroyed. And it would be restored. That's the resurrection. Not that he was about to destroy the temple that they're thinking of. He never made to begin with this temple made by the hands of man. He didn't make that. Let's continue now, stepping away from the religious people, now to chapter 15, verse 1. We're going to go 1 through 20. Very early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders and teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So, Pilate, so again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now it's custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested a man called Barabbas, was in prison with the instructions who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of self-interest, that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. They wanted to satisfy the crowd. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged 
and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling to their knees, they prayed homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put on his own clothes, put on his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. He's before the religious people. They want to get rid of him. Now he goes before the Roman authorities. It's interesting that Pilate even knows that it's out of self-interest that they're doing this. But even Pilate has that. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, he goes, okay, send him away. The next part, the crucifixion. The one word I've chosen is death. 21 through 41. A certain man from Serene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. When they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was at nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple built in three days, come down from the cross, save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teacher of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima shabalekam, nai, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, He's calling to Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Some women who were watching from a distance, among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him from Jerusalem were also there. What we have recorded in the four Gospels are these eyewitness accounts, what they saw happening during this time. As Jesus went to the cross, Simon joining and then crucified between two rebels. It is doubtful that many who witnessed it understood the true implications of what's happening here. Gratefully, we have the letters and the epistles written to many churches that describe why all this took place. There's where we can understand the full significance of what is happening to Jesus on the cross. Most were thinking this is just a horrible, physical suffering and death. <clears throat> Crucifixion was extremely a painful way to get, die. In fact, I've just copied notes from the NIV Study Bible. Here's what they say about Mark chapter 15, verse 24. <clears throat> Crucified. One of the most public, cruel public and shameful forms of Roman execution. Fixed by either nails or ropes, the victim's outstretched arms were pinned to a crossbeam that was raised and attached to a vertical stake. The legs were then similarly attached, either straddling the upright or supported on a footrest, with the victim often seated on a small support to prevent premature demise. They didn't want him to die right away. They wanted him to suffer. Damaging no internal organs and causing no serious blood loss, it was designed to prolong suffering for as long as three days. Hence, Pilate's surprise in verse 44. He was surprised he was already dead. This is before shock or the, you couldn't breathe due to the muscle fatigue resulted in death. The way they were stretched out, you could barely breathe. Naked. Though a loincloth may have been permitted when Jewish sensibilities were a factor, the humiliated victim was subject to violent abuse, often enduring birds and animals, bidding their feast while the victim was still alive. Death on the cross. The agonizing strain of the person's joints exposed to the harsh sun and the weather and the conditions and the difficulty to breathe, Jesus dies. But there was more than physical suffering and death. His suffering went far beyond the physical. To be hanged on the cross was to die under the curse of God. Listen to this, Galatians chapter 3, 13. But Christ was raised for us from the so, sorry, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. 
when he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse of our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scripture, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. So it's not just that he died. It's not just that he crucified. He took the curse to be separated from the presence of God. Or in the Old Testament, to be set outside of the camp. To be cut off from the benefits of God. On the cross, Jesus was cursed. That is, he was separated from the benefits of God. And he was the representation of sinners. The ones who were supposed to be on the cross. The ones who were supposed to take the curse. He took the full measure for them. On the cross, Jesus entered into the experience of forsakenness on our behalf. God is too holy to look on sin. God the Father turned his back on the Son, taking the sins, our sins, he endured on the cross. In his death, Jesus represented us. He took the curse of God on himself so that every believer would be released from that curse. Jesus bore the curse as the atoning sacrifice, which we'll talk more about next week. The last part. <clears throat> Chapter 40, 15, verse 42. It was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he had learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in the tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. We end with the word death. It's the end. It's finished. We are are truly to consider this the darkest day in history. But I don't want you to just sit there and go, yep, Jesus died, he's buried. Hey, guess what? It's because of you. Well, listen to this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us, sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sin. First John chapter 4 is this famous chapter about love. God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. But I love verse 10. This is real love. Not that we love God, because we are unable to. We are dead in our sins. But that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice, doesn't end with a period there, 
to take away our sins. This love is expressed in the great cost seen at Calvary. Bearing the wrath that our sins deserve seen in His death. We must see our sinfulness. And if we don't, we truly don't understand our need for salvation. We saw how many people in this story, many abandoned Jesus at His great hour of need. They abandoned the Master, the Rabbi. As we will see more next week, He does not abandon them. And He does not abandon us. Amen? He will not abandon them and will present them as a holy people to God the Father. If you have sinned, which we all have, this day is not too late to turn to the great Messiah, Jesus. Seek God's favor. Repent and turn to Him because the shepherd was struck and the sheep have scattered. But we're on this side of the cross, amen? And we, the sheep, need that ransom that He has given. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and we, we pause. We love holidays. We love celebrating different events. And in the Christian calendar, we're coming up to the greatest event in our calendar. And we know it's the greatest event in history, period. And we do celebrate that. But what makes it even the greatest celebration is the reality of the betrayal, of the denial, of the suffering of the crucifixion and the death. I do not deserve this. Oh, thank you for the cross. Help us never to be boastful and arrogant going, look at me. Oh, it's look at him. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, Christ died to save me, the worst of sinners, so that he might display his unlimited patience so others would know. Now to the King eternal, immortal, the one who lives forever, all praise and glory. Lord, we turn to you, your only hope for salvation. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.